Hey everyone, this is Melanie from Underfunded. We hope everyone got a nice relaxing summer break and is settling into the new school year. As we were editing this episode of the show, some more news broke about the upcoming trial for fairly funding public schools in PA. First, the court date was pushed back to October 12th, and then it was moved even further to November 12th. News about the trial seems to be breaking regularly, so to keep up to date, you can visit fundourschoolspa.org or follow them on Facebook or Instagram. I want to thank um, all who've come to witness this historic moment. For those of you who've studied the history of our government, you know most bills are signed at the White House. But I decided to sign this bill in one of the most important places in America, a public school. I'm Melanie Bavaria. And I'm Meg St. Esprit. Welcome back to Underfunded. We've got large challenges here in America. No greater challenge than to make sure that every child, and all of us on this stage mean every child, not just a few children. Every single child, regardless of where they live, how they're raised, income level of their family, every child received a first-class education in America. So that was former President George W. Bush. He was elected in 2000, and one of the first things he did was enact the No Child Left Behind Act. As we just heard, he wanted every kid in the nation to receive the same type of education and the same quality of education. But I think we can look around, listen to the different teachers, professionals, and parents we've talked to and see that that's really not what happened. So No Child Left Behind has been pretty controversial since it was enacted. Uh, mostly because it put a set of standards um, and made testing one of the the main points um, of sort of measuring the success of education. And so a lot of teachers, a lot of advocates are sometimes not so happy with No Child Left Behind because um, it created a culture of significant testing. Um, and also schools will get punished or not, depending on how they did on these tests. So now these have, now schools have ratings, um, and all of these different things that come out of kids being tested every year um, and grade level benchmarks. But this was all part of, in this moment, part of a debate over standards. But let's remember that the funding of schools still is coming from the state. No Child Left Behind increased the prominence of standardized testing nationwide and established yearly testing. But academic standards themselves have a longer history, especially in Pennsylvania. PA was on the forefront of the debate over standards since the 1990s, but only later in the decade did it become part of the national education conversation. Here's Ron Cowell, the former state legislator and education policy expert we spoke with in the last episode. You know, until uh, the early 90s, uh, Pennsylvania, like most states, uh, had a system that was uh, based largely on requiring students to take a certain number of credits or courses with prescribed labels, take them for a certain amount of time, and uh, if you did all right, uh, convince somebody to give you passing grades, uh, you graduated. Uh, with the advent of uh, standards, which in the early days were called outcomes, that was very controversial in Pennsylvania in the early 90s, uh, but with the advent of outcomes, uh, we began to 
uh, take a closer look at what we expected students to learn, uh, what they should know or be able to do or demonstrate uh, when it came time to graduate. Uh, there was a rigorous uh, debate in Pennsylvania and really around the country in the early 90s about whether uh, this idea of state expectations, state outcomes, or as we came to eventually know them as state standards, uh, whether that was appropriate, whether it was the state's business, or whether here in Pennsylvania that historically has been a local control state, whether it should be left to local districts uh, to make all of those decisions about uh, not just the curriculum, but what the expectations are, uh, what it would take to graduate. So uh, there was, a uh, again, a pretty healthy debate in Pennsylvania and around the country. Pennsylvania was one of the leaders, though. I actually remember, because I was in high school at the time that this was all happening, and there was such a shift between what was required of me and what was required of my twin brothers that are three years younger than me. It was right, literally, when this all was coming down the pike. And it did feel, and we were in a well-funded school district that was well-resourced, but it felt rigid and stifling. And there was a lot of debate and moaning and groaning about who exactly should say what we needed to do to graduate. And so remember, before this, in Pennsylvania, there's no clear standard for what an adequate education is. In fact, they really don't want to say what an adequate education is because then they'd have to put the money for it. But now the state has to say what the standards are and by extension, oh, well, this school or this school is not adequate or this school is doing well uh, based on these test scores. Um, What they don't end up doing is putting up the money to allow schools to reach that standard level. So while you're going to label one school as failing and one school as uh, proficient or succeeding, you're not necessarily going to change the amount of funding that each of those schools gets because we're still on a system that's essentially still governed by the 1991 funding model and hold harmless. And it even created a system where, because test scores are published, it even started to widen the divide because everything was out there on which schools were quote-unquote good and which schools were quote-unquote bad. Websites came out that rank them based on their test scores. And again, as Mel said, without any ability for the schools that got the bad ratings to even catch up. But the good news was that now all of a sudden there was actual data, right? So the one thing that No Child Left Behind really did was that it created a ton of data. And so all of a sudden we could now see the social and racial justice component of where the funding was going because we actually could measure which schools were being successful and which schools were not based on potentially understandably flawed, you know, there's a lot of arguments about the fact that testing might not measure everything. So maybe it's a flawed metric, but there's at least there's some sort of standardized metric in the state that is now going to show which schools are doing well and which schools aren't. And surprise, surprise, they actually line up pretty well with which schools have adequate funding and which don't. This data is what's largely informing the upcoming court case. Um, In this case, you know, this lawsuit is much stronger than the um, PARS lawsuit in the 90s because we have standard student assessments that can show the injury of students associated with the inequity in funding schools and that the pattern of failure on the part of student achievement follows the uh, 
inequity in um, and the underfunding of schools pretty directly. So this is Donna Cooper. She's the executive director for the Public Citizens for Children and Youth, and she was a secretary of policy under former governor Ed Rendell, who we're going to talk about in a little bit. She talks about how the George W. Bush administration changed the conversation about education nationwide. As he campaigned for president, was pretty clear about that. Uh, he really said, look, we need uh, education reform so that low-income children, so we can see the impact that we're having on the quality of education of low-income children. And I think in many ways, although the testing element of the No Child Left Behind has been widely attacked by parents and teachers because there's an overemphasis on testing, it has created a bright line set of information that show that we are failing to ensure children are able to do uh, grade level work. And we're certainly able to then also track that against resources. Um, and so it's ironic that the Republican House and Senate are arguing in the state case that they have no obligation to do anything other than give school districts enough money to turn the lights on. That's what they said in the preliminary injunction hearing when the standard bearer of their own party with the biggest education reform ever advanced by their own party would uh, in, in, in pursue that legislation exactly to solve the problem that this lawsuit's about. What has been missing from the get-go uh, has been the appropriate commitment to funding uh, that should go along with the articulation of state expectations and state assessment systems and state accountability systems. And so now we know when we say a child needs to learn algebra and what we mean by algebra and when they need to learn it. And when we say they need to learn 11th grade English, we know what we mean by that. And we can evaluate whether teachers and school districts are delivering that level of uh, lessons and curricula to enable children to learn that. And if not, remedy it. And the remedy is not just money. Obviously, it's the quality of the teachers. But those two things are inextricably connected. All the research shows great teachers get great student results, but uh, given the um, competitive or lack of competitive pay that most teachers face in Pennsylvania, we're just not attracting the people we need to the, to the teacher core to get the kind of results that our state needs. So from the federal level, bringing it back home to Pennsylvania, everything was a mess. We don't have a funding formula that follows enrollment, struggling with hold harmless, which we've talked about in the past, and the inequity among districts is just growing as some districts lose students and other districts gain students, and the budgets have no way of keeping up. It's in this context that Ed Rendell, the mayor of Philadelphia, runs for governor of Pennsylvania, and he makes education a major platform of his campaign. This is a couple years after Bush is elected, um, and right as No Child Left Behind is being implemented. He actually wants to fill this gap. He actually wants to try to figure out exactly how much it's going to cost for Pennsylvania to give enough money to schools to meet the standards that the state has now set. And he wins on that platform. So, so Ed Rendell's in office. We now have a set of standards. We don't know the amount of money that it's going to take all the schools to get to that set of standards. So what the costing out study did was it did exactly that. It just figured out how much would that cost. And actually, the Pennsylvania legislature was the one who called for the costing out study. Uh, nobody, the, the state board didn't have the authority, the legislature chose not to uh, really link 
together this question of what are our expectations and what is going to what is it going to cost to get there. Uh, it was not until 2006, uh, a decade later, uh, that the legislature finally asked the question: uh, What is it going to cost to give all students a reasonable opportunity to accomplish the state standards that we were going to hold them accountable for? And so the legislature uh, asked for a costing out study, and that was reported in late 2007. And it essentially said that uh, school districts were uh, collectively short $4.6 billion, $4.6 billion uh, of resources uh, that were necessary to give every student a reasonable chance to succeed. Now, I emphasize that was a, uh, it was deemed to be a mix of state and local money, that $4.6 billion. Uh, but well over $2 billion of it, it was deemed uh, to be uh, insufficient state money. Uh, so, you know, that was the first time folks began to put a, a dollar figure on this question, what will it cost uh, to have a sufficiently funded system to give all students a chance to succeed, uh, to uh, uh, demonstrate uh, proficiency relative to these expectations or these academic standards for which we were going to hold them accountable. That's Ron Cowell again. The uh, legislature that had asked for that costing out study uh, institutionally uh, largely ignored it. They just didn't like the answer, uh, and they didn't want to hear anything that was going to suggest that the state had a, a greater responsibility or a greater obligation uh, than uh, the legislature at that point was uh, putting up uh, or that uh, they were willing uh, to entertain. So in response to the study, our then-governor, Edward Rendell, proposed a plan to increase funding for public education in phases. And he, he proposed that we do it over six years, increasing state spending by $2.6 billion a year by 2014 and raising the remaining amounts locally. That's Valerie Harrison again. We heard her in the last episode. She's the senior advisor for equity, diversity, and inclusion at Temple University. She's also one that wrote her dissertation on the racial significance of Pennsylvania's K-12 public education funding scheme. And so, so we got started. In 2008, 2009, basic education funding inc was increased by $275 million. 2009, 2010, basic education funding was increased by $300 million. Um, as a result of the receipt of $654 million in federal stimulus money. 2010-11, um, basic education funding was increased by $200 um, million. So three years into Governor Rendell's plan, the, the state had failed to even achieve one-third of its $2.6 billion increase goal. Um, but we were moving um, in that direction. So right as all this is happening, and they're trying to figure out how much this is going to cost, the financial crisis of 2008 happens. There's a federal stimulus bill that gives states money to come out of the crisis, not unlike what just happened post-COVID and the passing uh, of the federal stimulus bill a few months ago. So Rendell's administration uses some of that money from the federal government to reach these educational budget targets. Here's Ron Calligan. So for three years, actually that year and for the two succeeding years, Pennsylvania had the largest uh, increases in state support for our school districts 
uh, of any of the, of the states in the country. Uh, during those three years, we had increases of 300 million, 275 million, and 250 million uh, in each of those three years. Uh, so that was an important step forward. The last two years, though, uh, was made possible to a significant degree by the availability of uh, federal stimulus money, because we were coming out of a recession at the time. Uh, the feds put up a significant amount of support to all states. So this is what Randall's trying to fix, right? He's trying to fill this hole. He gets a whole bunch of money and he decides from the feds and he decides to use it to try to fill the whole um, this budget hole of the schools in the state. Now that we have some sort of standard in place, we're all agreeing is necessary and we're actually acting on that, right? At the same time, the state is punishing schools and school districts over not meeting the standards that the state has put in place. And to figure out how much it's going to cost and to put up the money, why not, he thinks, and his administration thinks, use some of the federal stimulus money to plug that hole? This all changes in 2010 when Tom Corbett is elected governor and comes into office with massive cuts in education. So the plan, which was supported, you know, by advocacy groups and by the legislature, was abandoned by the legislature and Governor um, Tom Corbett's administration, which assumed leadership in January of 2011. And instead, they cut funding for public education by almost $1 billion. So it feels like, you know, you make a couple steps forward and then you make 10 steps backward. Remember, too, he had a Republican legislature behind him. With one party holding all the power, they were able to pass a bunch of stuff. Voter ID laws, redistricting, and completely changed the state of public education. And school districts were, um, who had been waiting, who were like above their adequacy target and had three years or four years of flat funding, weren't so happy. Many of them being in highly Republican voting areas persuaded the governor that we should scrap that formula. And the governor then used the expiration of the American Recovery Act funds as the excuse to say he, the state could no longer afford the formula, not the case. And he blacklined the formula out of law, out of the law, and the House and Senate went along with it because the districts that were below the adequacy target, by and large, not uniformly, but majority fell into democratic communities. There was a new administration and the end of the federal stimulus money and school districts collectively lost almost a billion dollars uh, of money coming from the state to school districts. So uh, that was an enormous step back, a setback uh, in terms of this whole history of, uh, of state funding. It was the only year, I've been around this stuff for 45 years now, it was the only year when school districts actually got less money from the state than they did the year before, uh, the only year in my 45-year experience. School districts opened their doors in September of 2011. They were actually receiving uh, almost $900 million less than they had received from the state the year before. Corbett and the state legislature refused to fill the gap with their own state budgets to fulfill the costing out study that had already been decided on. Here's Donna Cooper. By the way, the formula she's talking about here is actually the adequacy target for how much schools need to meet the state standards, the one that was set by the costing out study we just talked about. But to be clear, it's not the fair funding formula we've talked about in past episodes, which is about how money should be distributed. The fair funding formula didn't exist yet in 2011. State revenues had rebounded to pre-recession levels. 
So the state could have just you know, switched a dollar, a federal dollar for a state dollar in 2011. Uh, no harm, no foul. There was the state revenues were back up to the 27 level and they had plenty of money to absorb the ARA increase. It chose not to do so and instead put a tax cut on the table that was passed by the House and Senate for corporate taxes, uh, substantial $428 million corporate tax cut, and to put about uh, $258 million or so into a rainy day fund, and then to spend some money on other topics. So the while Governor Corbett professed that he had no choice but to make this drastic $1 billion cut and get a black line school funding formula, which he didn't need to do, he could have left this formula in place, um, it was an excuse to do that because the way the formula was rolling out was not working for the politics of the powers that be. And so the, the, the important thing about that is that the way the cut was effectuated, it cut money that was going to the largest school districts in the state because there were special programs like charter reimbursement going to the largest districts with the largest charter reimbursement. There was the accountability block grant, which was going on top of the basic ed formula for districts that had the largest share of students who were not able to perform at the level needed to pass the PSSA. There was um, extra tutoring money to on top of the accountability block grant that was cut again to try and get kids up to the PSSA. So there were cuts that were made by the Corbett administration exacted on the poorest low wealth district, most of whom were growing and nothing was done to uh, address the fact that in that same period in the four years of the Corbett administration, school districts were losing students, those cult called harmless districts never lost a dime. There ended up being huge political backlash for Corbett as a result of these education cuts. I mean, I don't think Tom Corbett really played out the political consequence of uniting 9,000 school board members Parents in 500 districts, maybe not quite 500, some of the hold harmless districts probably didn't feel the pain at all, but you united parents across rural, urban, and suburban districts. Um, you united all the school boards, the teachers union, because people couldn't negotiate contracts, and you created a united front against you. And so he, with that budget in 2011, basically sealed his fate. There was no recovering from that. And it was also no recovering because the consequences were so obvious um, and so cynical, right? So Philadelphia had to get rid of every student nurse, I mean, a school nurse, every school counselor, uh, most of the art teachers, class sizes swelled. That happened in Norristown, that happened in Powertstown, that happened in Allentown, that happened in Erie, in Scranton, in Hazleton, in Wilkes-Barre. You know, this was happening all over the state, Lancaster, Harrisburg, Reading, uh, York. So you basically created a movement to demand that this be changed. So districts all over the state were scrambling, cutting budgets left and right, closing schools, firing school counselors, nurses, etc. We're really still feeling the effects of this today. But so many people from different communities saw their schools affected and their kids bearing the brunt of this decision that it became a rallying cry in Pennsylvania and education became one of the biggest voting issues in the state. Tom Wolf actually runs on this issue and Corbett loses to Wolf strictly on the issue of educational funding. So Governor Wolf comes into office and he gets started right away on trying to come up with a fair funding formula. 
and a bipartisan fair funding formula finally passes the state legislature in 2015. And this fair funding formula actually follows enrollment. But there was a catch. Only new money goes into the fair funding formula, a couple million here and there. It doesn't get rid of the amounts from Hold Harmless that were based on 1991 enrollment numbers. Everyone still gets the same amount as they have for decades. And none of that money is moved around at all. Only the new money was going into this formula. So it was really a small part of the pie when you come to look at the whole budget. I, uh, I have three grandkids, and uh, the one, the middle one is 18 now. Uh, and uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I began to tell this story, and it still applies. Uh, we were then, and we are now, uh, a few years into this new formula. And I'm not considering what the governor has proposed this year, but what the legislature actually has done. Uh, the legislature has been putting $100 million or a little bit more than that into the new formula every year. Uh, I have said that my granddaughter, uh, who is 18, by the time at the current pace of new money and money being distributed to the formula, at the current pace, she will be more than 60 years old. She'll be about 65 years old, this 18-year-old will be more than about 65 years old before we get to the point where even half the money in the pot going to school districts will be distributed through the new formula. So we got a good new formula, makes a lot of sense, but at the current pace at which the legislature is adding money to the new pot, uh, it's not having much impact. Uh, and in fact, by some measures, we're actually going backwards because adding about $100 million a year uh, of state money uh, to the pot, uh, two, uh, it means two things typically. One, the state share is probably going backwards or diminishing rather than increasing because we're talking about $100 million as part of a $30 billion plus enterprise. Uh, so, you know, that's not uh, in any significant way or maybe uh, in, not in any way at all uh, increasing the state share. And secondly, uh, just adding $100 million a year and distributing just $100 million to the new formula uh, is not having the effect of any significant closing of that gap that I described before. Uh, you can't do it with uh, $100 million a year. In fact, you may just be going backwards. So it is important to note that the fair funding formula does show how to more fairly and equitably distribute money that is allocated but it doesn't determine how much money is actually allocated. So if you don't put that much money into the system in any meaningful way for it to go through the formula, it actually isn't doing that much for you, even if it's great in theory. After all, we don't want to forget that this system disproportionately impacts black and brown students in Pennsylvania. The first thing is the will of the legislature decides how much money is available for schools. So um, right now, what the legislature has decided about $6.3 is available for schools. And then that money is divided in two ways. The first is that we have a funding formula that was adopted in 2015 that is based on an accurate student count. And about 11% of that $6.3 goes out according to that new formula. And in essence, the legislature decided from 2015 going forward, every new dollar would be paid based on an accurate student count 
And the degree to which those students were in poverty and had high needs or had English language learner needs, we would give districts more money for those school districts um, and they would be based on the actual number of poor kids and English language learner kids. There's a couple other factors, but basically it's driven by student count and poverty. The bulk of the money, 5.6 billion, is distributed to uh, these um, to all the school districts in what's called the base. And the base is basically based in, in many ways on the 1991 student count. So in essence, the bulk of the funding, 89% of the money is driven out based on a student count that has absolutely nothing to do with reality. And it's basically whatever number your students you had in 1991, and then whatever money the school district, I'm sorry, and whatever money the legislature put in place each year since 91, uh, whether there was a formula in that year or just a backroom deal, it became part of the base, it was folded in. And so all the money is being driven out in, in sort of a opaque way that is predicated on how many kids were in your school district in 1991. If you look at the law in terms of the funding law, it doesn't say Black children should receive less money for their schools. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say white communities should have better funded schools. So it's neutral on its face in terms of, of speaking of race. However, the way that it operates impacts Black children disproportionately in a negative way. So even though the law does not say schools for Black children should receive less funding, the way that it operates is that that is the outcome because of our historic reality. And that reality is, again, Black families were legally denied equal opportunities for housing, employment, um, health care, until really the mid 19 mid-1960s when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed. And so as a result of that, families were clustered for the most part in areas that had fewer local resources to fund the schools. And so, for example, in our area, again, this is what I know best because I live here, even with the subsidies factored in, wealthy communities in Pennsylvania, let's take Lower Marion, with a property tax revenue that is supplemented by the state, they're able to spend upward of $28,000 per student. This was during the 2015-16 school year, and it's populated predominantly by white students. During the same school year, Philadelphia a school district that serves predominantly Black students, spent less than half of that number, $13,880 per student. And that's where the inequity, we see um, the stark inequity. So what, if anything, are our leaders in Harrisburg doing now in 2021 to fairly fund schools? Well, in February, Governor Wolf announced his budget proposal. And it was over a billion dollars for education. That's a lot and would have made a huge dent in the education funding gap in this state. This was right after the federal government passed an unprecedented relief bill in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic that saw large amounts of money go to support states. It's pretty similar to what happened after the 2008 financial crisis, but on a bigger scale. So Wolf announces a huge commitment to education in the form of, again, a billion dollars, more than a billion dollars, that would all go through the fair funding formula. In this proposal, if it had been adopted by the legislature, would have made an enormous difference that many education advocates applauded. 
Remember Dale Mezzacapa from the last episode? She's been covering education in PA for decades for outlets like the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Philadelphia Public School Notebook, and now Chalkbeat Philadelphia. Here's her take. What Governor Wolf is now proposing to do is, in his next year's budget, is to raise taxes so that he can distribute all the basic education funding based on the formula and have enough money so that no school district would lose, you know, add enough to the budget so that no school district would lose um, and that and then distribute funds going forward um, under the all the funds instead of just some of them under the new formula. So that's what he's proposing to do. Um, but I think that there is uh, recognition that that this is not going to happen. Politically, the legislature is not going to do what the governor is asking. They don't want to raise taxes. And, um, you know, they they don't want to increase the total pot by that much. What Dale predicted is actually what happened. At the end of June, while we were recording this episode, the state actually passed their new budget. And sadly, it doesn't include anything of what we need to truly fund education in Pennsylvania. There are some fund increases that have been shown, but really, at the end of things, we're still stuck in the same place. So the new budget does include $200 million in new education spending. That sounds like a lot. Um, and it is, it is a lot in a total amount of number, in a to- total number. But when spread across 500 school districts in Pennsylvania, it doesn't end up being enough to c- solve these issues that this entire podcast has been exploring. So we should note that this year's budget also included a new program called Level Up which allocated an additional $100 million to the 100 districts who are most severely underfunded. By passing this, the state legislature basically acknowledged that the widening gaps between wealthy and poor districts exist and are growing. But just like the $200 million basic education budget increase, an additional $100 million, even targeted to those districts who need it the most, is just nowhere near enough to solve this problem. Still, having it included at all was a win for many education advocates. We're going to go into this a bit more in the next episode and talk to some of the advocates who fought for it, but wanted to make sure that we mentioned Level Up here as well. I think it can be confusing as a taxpayer, a parent, a citizen of Pennsylvania. You're looking at these numbers. Okay, $200 million. That's an astronomical sum, you know, to someone who is day-to-day living on their basic salary. In addition, they have $500 million in a one-time act for coronavirus relief, but Like Mel said, there's 500 districts. It's just, we just can't keep up. And in fact, as Ron said earlier in the podcast, we're not even, it's actually going backwards. The amount of funding is actually going backwards as we try to keep up with rising costs. Keep in mind that this is an increase to a $6 billion state basic education budget. It costs $120 million just to keep up with the 2% yearly inflation rate. We also need to think about not just the rising costs of education, but whether or not kids in every community are actually getting what they need for a high-quality education. Whether they have enough teachers, whether the science labs have up-to-date equipment, whether they have the technology they need, can they take art classes? Those are all things we really need to be thinking about. And it's so clear, as we've heard in this podcast, that students in low-wealth districts everywhere in Pennsylvania are actually not getting what they need. That's why this has necessitated taking the state to court. So let's compare this, right? What Governor Wolf proposed in February, which a lot of advocates were really excited about, um, which is what Dale was referring to in his February budget proposal, was $1.5 billion in increase in basic and special education funding. 
that is not what happened. What happened was sort of a modest, smaller increase. 200 million is very different than 1.5 billion. Um, So we are going to still continue to see um, the same issues that we've been seeing for decades um, without some sort of massive change. I'm just thinking of all these kids coming back to school this fall. I mean, my children have been in a school building about two days total since March of 2020. And while our school definitely seems to have a great plan for the fall, they are dealing with children who are so out of routine, so traumatized, so mixed up from the the last year and a half. And the legislator, legislature in a political move barely put a Band-Aid on this problem. I mean, it's just, I think it really goes to show what everyone has been talking about this whole podcast is that they're not showing care for the kids in Pennsylvania. Not at all. And this is an unprecedented time, right? Uh, we haven't had a pandemic like this. We haven't had this type of disruption to education ever um, in our history. And there was calls for there to be an unprecedented investment in public ed. Uh, the feds, in some ways, have done that. The state legislature decided not to in this go-around. Um, which then begs the question, what is it that's going to solve this problem? And now a lot of people are pointing to a coming lawsuit that might actually change the paradigm of public education in the state. I think when you're looking forward to the lawsuit that's coming to trial this October, I can't see a better or more clear picture of why it's needed. Look at what just happened with our budget. There's currently $7 billion in federal aid that is unspent in Pennsylvania. We just had the chance to fix this, and we didn't. And so I guess this this is just what it's coming to, suing the state. And on the next and final episode of this season of Underfunded, that's what we're going to talk about. The case against the state coming before the Commonwealth Court of Pennsylvania on October 12th.